this time of year when everybody knows all around you can find that yuletide cheer it's everywhere you go you can drink it from a big red mug you can smell it in a seven wick candle super blessed to buy what i want so blessed With credit cards in the mail Christmas for sale Yeah Ain't it grand 80,000 strands of glow And now my lawn looks just like the North Pole All it took was a second loan on my home To replicate the snow Shabby chic holiday boutiques Painted signs Familiar taglines, ginger treats are why I believe the miracles are for real. Christmas for sale. Who needs a budget when they got Christmas for sale? Cold enough to buy. season cause it always brings a smile even if i get down i can flip my frown with all the latest styles don't you know you gotta spend to save get one free if you purchase a dozen such a steal we're willing to pay far above the retail christmas for sale sure whether to laugh or cry about that video, are you? That, uh, you know, we watch that, and, and to some degree, there's a lot of truth with that video. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's uh, somebody that you're married to. You don't have to raise your hand. If you want to sneak one up, I'll, I won't acknowledge that was you raising your hand. But, but uh, yeah, we get into this time of the year, and sometimes that's just the way things go, right? Hey, we're glad you're here with us uh, this morning. If you're uh, here in person, I know we've got a lot of people joining us online today because of the weather, but uh, we're glad that you're joining us here. We're starting a new series today called A Low-Key Christmas, and the whole purpose is over the next few weeks just looking at how we can kind of take a step back from that hustle and bustle, from that craziness, that chaos that sometimes surrounds this time of the year, was uh, kind of thinking about how Christmas has become not just the busiest, but maybe the most stressful and most expensive time of the year. 
It's busy because there's so much going on. We have kids' programs at school. We have uh, church activities. We have work parties. We have all of these different things taking place and going on. It's, it's chaotic because sometimes we don't even know exactly what day of the week it might be or what day of the month it might be. We just know that Christmas is X number of weeks away. It's expensive because, well, it's the holiday season and everything requires money, whether that's buying gifts, whether that is... Uh, having uh, people over for, for dinner or buying new decorations, whatever it may be, <clears throat> we have so much going on that it's an important time to just take a step back and unplug a little bit and get the reminder of what Christmas is truly about and also what Christmas is not about. Uh, today we're going to look at a topic that uh, the more I think about it might have been a little bit more relevant to put it last week than it is today because we're going to talk just about the idea of, of spending. Curious how many of you uh, hear me say we're going to talk about spending think, should have said this last week because it's too late now. It's already been spent. How many of you got your, your Christmas shopping done over the last couple of days? A few of you, yeah. You make us look bad. Thank you. Um, how many of you had it done well before then anyway? You took advantage of the pre-Black Friday sales or the pre-Doorbuster sales, yeah. Uh, Black Friday is, is a holiday for my wife's family. Uh, it was one of those things that, you know, a few years ago, it started at like 6 o'clock Thanksgiving night. We would have all the, the game plan out. We would have the battle plan. I was, my job was to go pick up newspapers all day long to get all the ads from all the different stores, and then we would take off. And we started at Walmart there in my hometown. I just went because they had video games on sale. I wanted to get some games because they were less than half price. I got an elbow to the chest and shoved backward into a rack full of other stuff. And I was like, you know what? I don't really need that PS3 game today. I think I'm okay. I'm just going to go on home. You guys call me when you're done. It was nuts. It was chaos. And, and, but that's what we do. We go out and we shop and we shop and we shop. I saw a, an estimate this year. In 2023, it's estimated that Americans are going to spend over $1 trillion with a T dollars on Christmas this year. $1 trillion, up almost $200 billion from a year ago. Yes, inflation plays a part in that, but still, that's just an astronomical number. It's estimated that the average American family will spend over $1,000 this year on Christmas gifts. And maybe one of the most staggering numbers I saw is that Americans are going to spend over $5 million on Christmas gifts for their pets this year. We decided this year for our dog, Ozzy, we're going to buy him our basement that he can stay in. He can just keep living down there. Americans will spend over $200 billion, over 20% of their holiday shopping on gift cards this year. And uh, one in three Americans said they're going to buy at least one gift card for somebody on their holiday list this year. And it makes sense. They're easy. They're simple. You can grab them as you're checking out. You can put however much money you want on them. And then whoever gets it can buy whatever they want. They don't have to take it back to the store. You can get an Amazon card or a Visa card or Walmart or Target or something very simple for that person to use. One problem with that, two out of three Americans said they still have gift cards left from last year's Christmas with at least some money on them. And it's estimated that in 2022, $21 billion went unspent on gift cards. I can attest to that because I at once upon a time had a stack of about a dozen Walmart cards that had at least a couple of bucks on them. My mindset was eventually I'll get enough, I can just use all of those at the checkout. 
you know, three or four dollars at a time and, and really annoy the people behind me. But uh, that's, we've almost all probably got a gift card or two laying around that didn't get spent. Spending has been on a continual climb for the last 20 plus years. It's more than doubled since 2004, and only two years has it not taken an increase. The 2008 year of recession and 2020 with COVID. Every other year, it's seen a pretty significant jump in how much Americans are spending on Christmas. And as I kind of have wrapped my mind around this this year, I know we're just as guilty of that as anybody. We are so easy for us to let spending get out of control, especially this time of the year, and you roll into the next year and into the new year trying to pay off your credit cards and take care of all of that and setting yourself back just a little bit. And then sometimes I just stop and think, why in the world do we do this to ourselves? Why do we do this? And so I want to just look at this idea today of why, why do we spend why do we spend what we spend? And I kind of want to handle this sermon a little different today because I'm going to really look at two big key points I want to make today. And this first one's really where we're going to get most of what, why, we, why we spend. And, and what I just want to get into first off is this, this challenge to you that we need to ignore what culture says about needing more. That's really where this comes from is this idea and this mindset that we need more. That's what advertising is all about. When I was in college, I was in the journalism school, advertising was a part of that. And, and one of the, the tenets of advertising is you've got to capture a need, create a need for the person that they can capture and grab a hold of that. And, and that's what commercials are all about. They're showing you why your life's going to be better if you buy this product. Uh, my my five-year-old is a great example of this. He's really into Paw Patrol and, you know, various cartoons right now on Hulu and, and sees the advertisements that pop up. And every time one comes up, Dad, I need that. I need that Hot Wheels city. I need, you know, whatever it might be. I need that Nerf gun. Uh, he was looking at a Bass Pro catalog the other day. I need that shotgun. I'm like, you don't need that shotgun, buddy. Like, you know, <laughs> one of these days you're not there yet, okay? You know, he needs whatever it is. He told me the other day that, that I needed a new truck and a boat. I'm like, you're not wrong about that one, okay? Like, yes, you're right about that. But, you know, it's, again, we need more. And that's what it really boils down to. We think about this, this stuff that we need. We need it because society says we need it because our lives will be better if we have it. Romans 12, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What he's saying there is don't let the world dictate what you think that you need. Don't let the world dictate how your life should go. Instead, transform your mind into what God has for you. Allow God to transform your heart and your mind and your soul. And that's, that's the battle for us today. Because society, again, not only tells us what we need, it tells us why we need it, and it's so easy for us to start to believe that. And let me just tell you, before I get into these today, in full transparency, these are some struggles for me. These are some big struggles for me, because what does society tell you about needing more and getting more? First off, it says if you get that, it'll make you happy. It'll make you happy. And, and there's some truth to that. I saw a meme a long time ago that I thought was pretty accurate. It said money can't buy happiness, but I've never seen an unhappy person riding a jet ski. Like, the more you get, you buy something. There's a sense of endorphins that kick in when you, you buy that. I can't wait to wear that shirt. I can't wait to, to ride on, on this motorcycle. I can't wait to, you know, show off these shoes. Whatever it might be, there's this sense of happiness that comes 
when you buy something. The problem is that happiness runs out. And you realize at some point, as you chase acquisition and you chase buying, you chase purchasing, eventually you realize, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, it's like chasing the wind. It's meaningless. Ecclesiastes 5, he says this, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever uh, loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Was was talking about this with my kids a little bit this week, specifically with Amelie, my nine-year-old. Uh, this weekend, we got to go watch a football game uh, at, in Oklahoma, and as we're driving back, we were talking about it because Elsie, my oldest, didn't want to go. She wanted to go Black Friday shopping with my mother-in-law and sister-in-law and her kids, and so as we're driving back, we're, we're hearing about the stuff Elsie spent our money on, not her own money that she took with her that she said, I have money, I can go Black Friday shopping. That's you know, not how an 11-year-old works, obviously. Hearing about what she bought, she bought herself a dress, she got some shoes, she wanted a CD player because she wants to be vintage. I went and sat in a dark room and wept all afternoon, okay, I'll deal with that crisis later, okay, but she wanted a CD player and therefore CDs, okay, and, and Amelie's hearing about the stuff Elsie bought and she kind of goes, oh, that would have been nice, I said, but think about this, you know your sister, in a couple of months she's going to forget she even bought those shoes, in a year, she's going to outgrow that dress. Before long, she won't even play those CDs anymore. You made a memory today. You got to do something fun. You got to do something that I did with my dad growing up that I still like, vaguely or vividly remember those details of that day. I said, did you have a good time today? Yeah, I did. I said, that's not a temporary thing. What she did was temporary. What she bought was temporary. Everything that we own is temporary. It may last a long time, sure, especially as an adult, you buy clothes, you buy shoes, they may last you until they wear out, but eventually it's temporary. It goes out of style, it wears out, we get rid of it, we move on. Even the stuff that we pass down to the next generation, at some point there's going to come a generation that no longer wants that. I was at my grandma's house yesterday, and I went out in my grandpa's shop, which when he was still alive, it was his wood shop. It was a, he had so many power tools and built so many things in there. I spent a lot of time in there with him when I was a kid. Now it's kind of just become a glorified storage for all of our junk. Like, I've had stuff in there. I, I went out to see if I still had anything left. Actually, I went out to see if I still had CDs left because I really wanted to play some of those on LCCD player to show her what music was really like, you know, when CDs were a thing. Uh, Trying to get some of that boys to men stuff, you know, some of the good, good stuff like that. But I'm just looking around the shop, and it kind of hit me. It's like, my grandma's about to turn 94. How much longer is her house going to be in our family? What's going to happen when somebody else buys it? Is somebody else going to want this shop? What are they going to do with it? And at some point, like anything, those houses are going to be knocked down, and new ones will be built. That's the way the world works. Everything we own is temporary. And the thing you have to understand is temporary things lead to temporary happiness. Those things we buy, there's a reason we wind up giving them away. They don't bring us happiness anymore. Or we replace them with something new. Or, or something better comes along. Or they break and they get thrown out. Temporary things lead to temporary happiness. Yes, the world tells us that getting more will make us happy. And there's truth to that. But we have to keep that truth in perspective. The second thing it tells us is that getting more will make us feel important. The more we have, the happier we get, but the more important we feel. 
I can remember as a kid, my, my parents both worked pretty low-income jobs. They were very blue-collar jobs. My dad was a police officer in a small town. My mom worked as an, a, a secretary for an attorney in his, just his own private office. And so looking around, looking back, we had everything that we needed, but I didn't have the stuff my friends had. There was always that comparison going on. And I thought, man, you know, their parents must make a lot of money. They must be somebody, somebody special. They must be somebody important. And I think there's this association that we have that the more we have, the more we're going to get the envy of other people. Therefore, the more important we are. Jesus warned a crowd in Luke 12. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And like I said, this is a, a struggle for me at times. Because I've looked at people that I've known growing up that that was an important person because of whatever it was they did, whatever their job was or whatever their status was or their stature in town, there was this sense of importance around who they were. And my thought as a kid was always, I want to be that person. I want to be the one everybody looks up to. I want to, you know, it's that mindset. And then the more I look back at it, that's rooted in two things. It's rooted in greed and it's rooted in pride. And it's been a struggle for me to look back on that. Because the idea of importance, you have to understand, there's no stopping to that. There's always something else or there's always someone else that's just a, a couple of steps ahead of what you have or what you are. And so we've got to be careful with that mindset of happiness and importance because it's, it's going to be a continual chase. The third thing we think about getting more is that having more will make me feel secure. That the more I have, the less I have to rely on everybody else. The more I can get, the less I have to, 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 to go out to somebody else. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not worry about these things, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? These thoughts dominate uh, the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all of your needs. So seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. That's the key part there. He's talking in this passage about worry, and we talked about worry a few weeks ago when we read this passage there too, but talked about how we obsess over what we need to wear or need to eat. And yes, let me be clear, parents, we've got to be making sure we're budgeting for you know, groceries and clothes for our kids. We can't just go, you know, okay, well, he said not to worry about that, so I'm not going to, and then suddenly you go to Walmart like, hey, I have no money, but God's going God's to send us food. He's not going to reward your irresponsibility. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying don't let that obsess your mind. Don't let that block you from everything else. Don't worry about these things, he says. He says he, he takes care of the birds and he takes care of the grass, and the grass is here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow. He is going to take care of what you need, and we too often get obsessed over what we want. We get obsessed over the stuff. We get obsessed over the things that we have prioritized, we have made more important than they truly are. And again, it's just this, this never-ending loop of, of things, this never-ending battle of, of trying to, to get a hold of really, really great things. Uh, one time, I got the opportunity to fly first class, and uh, it was like this amazing you know, 40-minute flight from Joplin, Missouri to Dallas, Texas. Um, got, you know, kind of bumped up because I was on standby, and that's where they start. They start filling those seats first, and there were like 12 people on this entire flight. So I got to sit up there. We set this first class. I really got cheated, okay, because when you fly first class, you get food. You get two drinks instead of just one, you know. Like looking back on those peasants getting just one can of Coke, I was getting two. 
Except the flight was so short, they never brought the second one. I'm like, hang on, can I at least get that to go? Like, I want to take that in the airport with me. And yeah, we land in Dallas, we catch our connection. I was the next to last person to get on the plane there. And I'm in the back row, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm a first class passenger now. You know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm somebody important, I'm somebody special. But you know, we get this mindset of, of we just constantly chase and chase and chase. Whatever it is, if it's a seat on an airplane, if it's more things in our house, if it's more stuff to put in our garage, whatever it may be. And the truth of the matter is, folks, we don't need more stuff. We need more God. We don't need more stuff. We need more God. It is very easy to think that I'm going to just be happier. I'm going to feel more important. I'm going to have everything all set in stone. If I could just get this, if I could just get this thing taken care of, and we lose sight of who we are called to be. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we put our trust in the things that we can buy. And that may sound silly to say that out loud, but there's a sense of control with that. What I choose to buy or not to buy, what I choose to acquire or not to acquire, what I choose to do or not to do, there's a sense of control within that as long as my bank account will allow me to do it. And as long as my wife doesn't know that I'm spending that money, there's a sense of control within that, right? Now, we think that if I could just buy that new truck, if I could just buy that new purse, if, my, if I could just get my kids that new iPad, there's this sense of, of control with what we can do next and how that's going to help us out. But we have to ask ourselves a question when it comes to what we are doing. Are we investing in the temporary and the material or are we investing in the eternal? What are we putting our focus into, our priority into? We have to retrain our minds, folks, to start thinking about the eternal. Yes, we're here and we're here in a, a temporary material world. And, and there are some of those material things that we do need. We do need clothing. We do need food. We do need shelter. We need transportation. We need all of those things. But at what point does it become enough? What point does it become too much? Retrain your mind to start thinking on the eternal instead of the consumeristic and the material. So how do we do that? A few things we can do. Number one, if you want to stop thinking about the consumerist mentality, stop comparing what you have to others. That's the first thing we can do. Stop comparing what we have to others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Social media gives a great window into us comparing because when we post things on social media, we, we post our highlights. We post the new things that we get or the things we got to do or the, the places we got to travel or the, 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 the great experiences that we have. And it's very easy to sit back and see what other people are doing and go, man, I didn't get to do that. Or maybe, it's maybe make it even worse, we do something and realize somebody else did something even a little bit better. I, I got the chance this past... Uh, Thursday on Thanksgiving afternoon to, uh, to get my first deer of the year. It was a nice old buck, really tall rack on him, and um, felt pretty good about it. 
You know, I was like, I'm pretty happy with this one. My dad and I took it to check it in and uh, to get it processed, and we drop it off, and there's three just monsters in there. I'm like, and the worst part was the biggest one, massive deer, was shot by a 12-year-old. Like, seriously, kid? You got your whole life to upstage me, and you're doing it now, you know? Got a buddy who posted one yesterday. He, he got one, a nice big deer. And it's, you know, it's easy to sit there and go, man. But no, I was like, hey, that's a great deer, man. Good shot. Good shot. Social media is a great place and a great opportunity for us to celebrate other things with other people rather than compare ourselves to them. It's a great opportunity for us to do that. And here's what we've got to be careful, though. If all we do is compare and all we do is chase What are we doing as the church that's any different than the world around us? As a church, we will not make an impact in the world by being exactly like the world. We have to present an alternative to the me-focused world around us. Colossians 3, Paul says, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the earthly things. How do we do that? Here's the second thing we can do. Rejoice in what you do have. Quit comparing to what you don't have and rejoice in what you do have. There's an old saying that's kind of cheesy, but it's true. What if you woke up tomorrow and all that you had is what you thanked God for today? All that you had tomorrow is what you thanked God for today. What would you have? How many of you would have nothing more than just your health? Nothing more than just your, your spouse or your family? How many of you would have everything because you thank God for everything. Hebrews 13, verse we, we read a couple of weeks ago, but kind of looking at it in a little different context here. The writer says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We often get caught up in the pursuit. The Bible doesn't say that money itself is evil. It doesn't say that having money is wrong. It says the love of it the pursuit of it, putting that above all else, that's where you get yourself into trouble. And too often, that's what we do because we need to do that to take care of ourselves. And we forget that God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. And he's going to give you what you truly need. And in reality, we just think that we need more and more and more and more to take care of things ourselves. And in the process of doing that, we get our priorities all out of whack. A good way to get your priorities back in in line is to to pay attention to this third thing. If you want to resist the consumerist mindset, return that first 10% back to God. Now, we could give entire sermons on tithing, an entire series on on why we should prioritize the tithe. And we've done those, and we'll do some more of those in the future at some point. But it's worth the reminder. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Again, it's worth remembering where those priorities lie. And it's worth the reminder every so often that even in the midst of a busy, expensive time of the year, that we need to make sure we're faithful and that we give God the first 10%, not the remainder, not the leftover, not if we happen to have any left before we max out our credit card. No, honor him first 
Why? Because he's already given you everything. He's given you everything, and if you're faithful in, in responding to him, he'll be faithful back to you. But here's a second big lesson that we need to keep in mind when it comes to this type of, of time of the year, especially in the busyness and the chaos and the spending and everything else that we do. We need to remember the true reason that we celebrate. Now, I love the, uh, the old Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown Christmas special, and if you don't remember it, it's, you know, they're trying to put on a production and a play, and Charlie Brown's the director of this, and they go out to, uh, to buy a um, Christmas tree, and they want him to buy the biggest, uh, you know, most elaborate tree possible, and what does he come back with? He comes back with one of these. And he puts it down, and of course they ridicule him, and... In the midst of of looking at this, they get the reminder of what Christmas is really all about. When his friend Linus gets up and and instead of trying to defend Charlie and trying to to really explain, you know, why we don't need a big, huge tree, he just gets up and he reads this passage out of Luke 2. He says, so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. As we get into this holiday season, we remember what it's all about. We remember why we celebrate to begin with. And maybe you've seen those signs that'll say Jesus is the reason for the season. Let me just tell you, church, if you're not stopping and remembering why that is important, that saying doesn't mean anything. It's just a fancy saying on a piece of paper or on a sign or something that you might hang up or put up around town. Are you actually stopping and worshiping him during this time. Back in the mid-1800s, there was a, a man named Phillips Brooks. He was uh, born into a wealthy family in New England, went to Harvard. He was very well educated. But instead of following the same path that his family had followed, he followed God's call and went into ministry. He was pastoring a church in Philadelphia in the late 1860s when they sent him to the Holy Land to go explore and, and follow the steps where Jesus had been like some of us have done already this, this, earlier this year. And while he was there, he got to go on horseback and ride from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and go through the shepherd's fields and, and, and see where the shepherds had been that night when the angels visited them. And when he got home a, a couple of years later, he started to write about his experience and write about what he remembered seeing that hadn't left him. And he wrote these words that stuck with this over 150 years later that we still sing today. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. 
Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears for all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King, peace to men on earth. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Emmanuel's a name that's often used for Jesus. The translation of Emmanuel is simply God with us. John chapter 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word, uh, word was God. And then a few verses later, it says the Word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because we remember a gift that we were given. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. That's what this season is all about. It's so easy to get caught up in everything that's going on. And yes, I love watching the, the looks on my kids' faces. Last Sunday afternoon, we left here. Um, I had to swing by Bass Pro Shop to grab something, and Titus loves that because that's the North Pole. That's where he gets to go see Santa. We, we go down there because just a little plug for it, middle of the week, no lines, no charge, nothing. It's great. And it's Bass Pro, you know, win-win. We walk in there, he runs right up to Santa, tells him what he wants. It took him quite a while to get through everything he wanted. Took a picture, the smile on his face, it's the biggest, cheesiest smile I've ever seen Titus make. You love that, right? That's what Christmas is about with, with our kids. We teach them what it's about otherwise as they grow. And Christmas is about a baby that was born. So he could one day grow up and die and give his life for us so that we could be reconciled back to the Father, so that we could come back to God. One of my favorite songs around this time of the year is a song that probably most of you haven't heard of. A song by the band Reliant K, which was big when I was in college. They sing this song, and, and it, kind of towards the end of the song, they have the line, I celebrate the day that you were born to die so I could one day pray for you to save my life. Some people get uncomfortable talking about the cross at Christmas, but that's what Christmas is about. There's a manger and a cross that are bookends. And in the middle of that is Jesus. And Jesus came for you. And he came for me to take away the sin of the world, to be the Savior, to be the Messiah. When Brad comes out in a few minutes and we do communion, that's what we remember. That's what we focus on. It's about Jesus coming for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful for your son. We're grateful, Lord, that you sent him to us and that he was faithful and obedient to you all the way to the cross. God, that he didn't look at himself as, as, as a God who couldn't come to his people, but God, he humbled himself to do just that, to become one of us so he could become like us so that we would be pulled to him, that we could relate to him and we could come to know him. We're so thankful for that. God, I pray that would be our, our focus and our mindset 
this holiday season. It wouldn't be on all the material things. It would be on you, on the eternal things. And we are so thankful for you. So thankful for Jesus, we pray in his name. Good morning. We've come to the time of communion, and so if you need to get a communion cup off of one of the tables or yeah, over here in the corner or in the back, feel free to go, go ahead and get up at this time and do that. You know, it's during communion that uh, a couple of the main thoughts that go through our mind involves... Um, subjects like forgiveness, right, and um, reflecting, remembering the price that the Lord paid in order for us to be forgiven. Uh, those, those are a couple of the key thoughts. Uh, but to get, kind of get a running start at that, let, let me back up a little bit and give you what, for all intents and purposes, represents a classic example of uh, the need for forgiveness and when forgiveness was granted. It involved a character in the Old Testament that is one of the main characters of the Old Testament. In fact, God described this individual on one occasion as being a man after my own heart. It was David. And David uh, did not live a perfect life. And for any of us that spend any time reading through the Bible or studying characters of the Bible, you know that full well. There was a point in time, especially when uh, he didn't join his army. And he stayed back in Jerusalem and allowed the commander, Joab, to, to uh, take the army and cross the Jordan River. And they were fighting a battle in basically what today is modern day, a man Jordan. And, and David stayed back in Jerusalem, and I don't know if he just got bored or got restless or, or what, but he got up one evening and took a walk up on the, the top of the palace, and, and that's when he spotted Bathsheba. And you know the rest of the story there. Um, and he committed sin. But the sin wasn't just in what happened that night sin it only got worse because after David found out later that Bathsheba had become pregnant he got into this mode where he was trying to cover his tracks and so he uh, sent a messenger to go to Joab uh, and giving him instructions to send Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back. And, uh, and so Joab did, and Uriah came and reported to David how the battle was going. And then David said, okay, basically, thank you for relaying that. You can go home to your wife. But Uriah wouldn't do that. He insisted on just sleeping at the gate. Uh, he wouldn't go to his wife because from his perspective, 
all of his fellow soldiers were out on the battlefield and so he wasn't going to take the luxury of sleeping in his own bed with his wife when they couldn't be in their own homes and with their wives. So when David heard that, um, he decided, okay, well, let's go the next step then. And so that next evening, he got Uriah basically drunk, figuring, okay, now he'll won't exercise such character and everything, and he'll go home to his wife. But even drunk, Uriah, at this particular moment in time, displayed more character being drunk than what David was demonstrating. And Uriah wouldn't do it. And so finally, David sends a message in Uriah's hand to be delivered to Joab, giving instructions that as they were fighting there, basically the citadel and a man, some of us have gone to Jordan. You've been there at the very spot where this happened. And where the where the battle was the fiercest, that's where Uriah was supposed to be stationed. He was positioned there. And then Joab was to have the rest of the soldiers withdraw so that uh, Uriah would end up dying. Th those were the instructions David sent. So in an attempt to cover his tracks, he was even arranging the death of an innocent man. And sure enough, it plays out that way. And then David ended up taking Bathsheba as his wife and the child was born and so now it's a number of months later you know closing in on a year roughly and um, then Nathan the prophet confronts David and David comes to the realization that all of his efforts to cover his tracks and to hide what he had done and all of this, well, obviously none of that had been hidden from God. And so he fell under conviction. I mean, it took months for him to get to this point, but, but he fell under conviction for his sin. And he pleads with God. And, and we don't need to guess what frame of mind David was in at this moment in time because there is a psalm that he wrote at this time. Psalm 51, the caption at the beginning of the psalm says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And here's just a few of the words uh, of what David said in this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So he's calling upon God in his compassion, and he's basically pleading for forgiveness. He says, blot out, wash away, cleanse me. And I want to jump down to verse 7. He says this, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. I always think of this story, especially when the first snowfall happens. Well, we got last night. And I want to encourage you when, when you leave here and you're driving out and I'm going to assume the sun will still be shining bright and it won't be cloudy, but, but uh, um, 
probably one of the directions you turn, there's going to be a glare because the sun is glaring off the snow. You know how bright it can be, freshly fallen snow. But I want you to allow that to be an object lesson as what David is referencing here because he recognized that when God blots out sin, when he washes it away, when he cleanses sin, then the end result of that is we are whiter than snow. There's no stain of sin left. Complete forgiveness. And David, even though he didn't, he didn't deserve to be forgiven, yet he knew the heart of God. And he knew how compassionate God is. And in his repentance, he was calling upon God to cleanse him. Today, you may not have done the same sort of things that David has done, but you may have some things in your past you look back on that you, you're not proud of. They're certainly not your proudest moments. You regret, you wish you could have a redo, relive those moments in time and make different decisions. But the reality is we can't. We can't do that. But the good news is we have a compassionate God that when he has extended forgiveness, he doesn't do it just momentarily until it's convenient to bring it back up again, what you did against him. No, the forgiveness is so complete, is so thorough, that it's not that you're as white as snow, you're whiter than snow. I want you to think about that, both during this time while you take the bread and you eat it in the cup and drink and remember the price that Jesus paid when he went to the cross to make that forgiveness possible. But I want you to, to reflect and to celebrate how complete God's forgiveness is. And then when you leave here today, and every time the sun shines off that snow, let it be a reminder God has forgiven you. It was a high price he had to pay but he has completely forgiven you as his child. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for the reminder today, whether we saw it last night before we went to bed or, or whether we just saw it for the first time this morning when we woke up and saw the whiteness of the snow. And for the reminder that that serves of multiple passages of scripture that talk about this particular analogy of how thorough your forgiveness is. We don't deserve that, Lord. But we celebrate it. We thank you for loving us and being such a compassionate God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.